I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast as ever, your host Matt Dixon. And today, well, we've got a conversation. We've got a conversation the man who I think is central to much of the success of Purple Patch. He's our director of coaching operations. He's a wonderful athlete. He's become a trusted resource for myself and Kelly. And yet today, we're going to talk about drugs. We're going to talk about dealing. We're going to talk about addiction. We're going to talk about prison. What does this have to do with performance? Well, today, the story is about navigating addiction, coming out the other side, and finding his very own purple patch. Matt Hurley, today, you're going to be on the spot with me. We're going to talk about your journey through life, and in your few short years, well, I don't mind saying, it's been a little crazy. But before we do that, let's do Word of the Week. We like the way he thinks. Serious with a wig. Let's open the book. It's time to take a peek. It's the Dictionary Word of the Week. And the word of the week this week? Well, it's three words. It's eggs, potato, and coffee. Eggs, potato, and coffee. What in the world does that have to do with performance? Well, this story that I'm going to tell you which a friend of mine told told me a long time ago, and it sort of maybe went into the back of my mind. I forgot it, but I found myself bringing it out once again at the Purple Patch Pro Camp a couple of weeks ago in Scottsdale. And the moral of this story is all about how you approach adversity. So I'm going to tell you this story, and I'm not sure where the story is from, but it's going to become our Purple Patch Word of the Week this week. So there's a teenage girl and she has a father and the father is a chef and the girl is facing adversity and as you might imagine is not maybe handling the adversity in the way that we would hope a mature adult might. And so the chef, thinking on his feet, gets three saucepans of water. He puts the three saucepans of water on three stoves and a different stovetop and he begins to boil the water. He then goes to his pantry, much to his daughter's frustration, and he gets out three things. The first is the potato. The second is an egg. And the third is some coffee grounds. And he says to his daughter, what do you see in front of you? And she says, I see a potato, I see an egg, and I see coffee. Well, by this time, the water has come to a boil. So the chef calmly puts the potato into the boiling water, takes the egg and carefully places it in the boiling water, and then takes a big scoop of the coffee grounds and stirs it into the boiling water. And then he stands there quietly for 20 minutes. The frustration on his teenage daughter's face is written all over it. She is frustrated. And yet, after 20 minutes, the chef reaches in, and carefully ladles out the potato and the egg, and then spoons out a little cup of coffee. 
and he says to his teenage daughter, what do you see? And she says, I see a potato, I see an egg, and I see some coffee. And he says, no, what you see is three things and three things that have met the same adversity, boiling water. Well, the potato started out hard and it met the adversity, it became soft. And the egg began its life being fragile, but it met the adversity and it became hard. And yet the coffee met the adversity and transformed the adversity into something magical. And so the question for the daughter, is you a potato, are you an egg, or you some coffee? You see, that has a lot of good stories because on the performance journey, all of us are going to meet adversity. But the question is, how are you going to manage and lean into and navigate adversity to make it something great? Well, I tell you what I want my pro athletes to be and what I want you to be. That's not a potato. That's not an egg. Let's go and be some coffee. And that is why the word of the week this week is eggs, potato and coffee. I hope you remember it. Use it for yourself. And now, well, let's stay with the food. Let's get on with the meat and potatoes. All right, guys, well, here we are, the meat and potatoes of the week. And today I've got my right-hand man, Matt Hurley, with me. Now, you might not have heard of Matt Hurley necessarily, but he is our Director of Coaching Operations at Purple Patch. And he coaches several of our high-performing athletes, as well as being a mentor to our coaching team at large. And himself is a great athlete. He's got a background in swimming, as you'll hear a little bit about today. Transitioned into Moldy Sport, becoming overall champion at Ironman 70.3 Maine last year, multiple time qualifier to the 70.3 World Championships. And he's also a really strong presence in that swim run sport, the Ateo races and other races of that style, including a certain race where he and his partner, fellow Purple Patch coach John Stevens, won overall, including beating a certain Lance Armstrong and Olympic triathlon champion, Simon Whitfield. But today, we're not going to talk about Matt's athletic prowess. We're not going to talk about his coaching career. We're not going to talk that much about Purple Patch. What we're going to tackle is addiction. So fasten your seatbelt. It's a crazy story, but it is a story that I think is filled really with hope, lessons, and for many of you listeners, maybe a little bit of inspiration. He's become my right-hand man, key part of success at Purple Patch. Matt Hurley, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Long time listener. Long time listener. And now you're on the other side. Now you're with daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I'll get that into every episode, Manny. So, um, so as we go through, uh, every time we have a guest on, I think it's really important for us to get some context, get some, some, some background on who you are. So before we dive into your story a little bit, let's talk about family background growing up. What, tell us a little bit about your history. Sure. Yeah. I, um, I grew up in a small town named Belfast. Uh, it was a blue collar town, uh, manufacturing chicken and um, other things in the 70s. And, and when manufacturing died off, it um, made the slow transition to sort of a, 
uh, you know, tourism, which is, you know, pretty much makes up Maine these days. And um, when I was growing up in, in Belfast in the 90s, it was you know, very much, you know, divided between, you know, um, you know, progressive on the coast and very blue collar and, um, you know, rural. Um, so it was, it was, you know, I grew up a mix. I, I you certainly didn't, um, you know, we never felt like we were poor, but you know, most people don't move to Maine to have a, you know, rich and lavish lifestyle. So it was, it was, you know, looking back and, you know, seeing where I'm at now, it's, um, it was a sort of a unique place to grow up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about family? Do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm the middle child. I have an older brother, Chris, who's um, 37, and I have a younger brother, William, who's 26. Okay. And then you, you studied through high school and uh, you went to university. You swam in college. Yeah, Let, let's actually go back to your athletics first. I guess, when, when did you first get into exercising sport? Um, well, my mom put me on the swim team when I was... Um, uh, five. Uh, my brother was on the swim team, so I would go to practice and I would watch him swim. Um, and I think my mom, she'll always talk about it, but put us on the swim team because she was just afraid we would drown. You know, there's a lot of lakes and, and obviously sure, oceans. Sure. And, um, you know, both my parents were working growing up. So I think, you know, they were uh, trying to keep us as busy as possible. But I played, I played every sport. I played ice hockey. I played baseball, um, peewee football for one year. Um, it was a short-lived career as a safety. <laughs> I was not very fast then, and I'm still not very fast now. And uh, my mom actually wouldn't let me play football after that. So she was, you know, ahead of the curve in terms of brain damage and concussions. Sure, sure. So, And and the, the sport that did stick for you was swimming. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, so you went on to, you swam in university, yeah? I did. I swam for Wheaton College for four years. Um and uh, I was also um, a fairly accomplished runner in high school, um, but I, you know, I, fo- I ended up focusing on swimming um, after my sophomore year. Okay. So th- this is the point that we start to diverge because th- this podcast is about performance and uh, performance across all aspects of life. And so it'd be very easy to have you on here and talk about your experiences at swimming at university, your, your accomplishments in the sport, in multi-sport, both uh, 70.3 as well as as the swim run events that you do, but we need to go into your story. And, uh, and so why don't you set the stage for us? This, this podcast, this episode is about addiction because you are an addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least you, you were a, an, an addict. And, uh, so why don't you set the stage? What was the, what was the situation? And, uh, and, and I guess when did it tip for you? Was there a time where it tipped from almost fun to addiction? When did that become an awareness? I guess first I'll say, I mean, I, I certainly, um, I guess if I den- I'm wary of identifying as anything, um, sure. but if I do identify with anything, it's as being an addict. Um, it's, you know, ever since I was, you know, young, the things that I think, you know, there's a lot of parallels between sport, um, and addiction and, and, and performance, um, you know, being driven in the workplace, whatever it is, I think the things that have, um, made me a successful, um, you know, athlete were also qualities that were amplified in my addiction. And, and so, yeah, you know, I don't know when the tipping point necessarily was, I think, um, you know, I, as I said, I grew up in, you know, a small town and my parents both, you know, worked very hard and were, you know, I came from a very loving home. Um, I also, you know, like most families, uh, you know, rich history of alcoholism, you know, going back, you know, many years, um, so what there was that there has been a history of threat yeah, of the family. Yeah, yeah, and so not, not in my you know 
and my parents luckily were you know were just fantastic and but you know both of the, both of them came from some form of alcoholic and, and broken homes um you know and then you kind of go down the genealogy list of um and it's just a um, long list of irish uh, drunks really mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but it, you know i think when i was when i was probably 13 or 14 years old you know i started smoking pot and drinking and 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 at that time it was um it was a lot of fun, right? And, and I'd found something new and exciting. And I think, you know, the same things, which I, you know, um, when I look back on it now, I was um, sort of seeking a, a spiritual um, experience. And, and I think drugs are an easy outlet, right? They, they allow you to tap into something else that's, um, you know, you know, you instantly in flow or whatever you want to call it, you know, you can, you can pick up a beer and you can kind of check out, right? And, and um, you know, and then, you know, my peer group, I think it was, you know, just because of, um, you know, where I grew up and, and who I was spending time with. Right. Um, most of them were, were good athletes. Most of them came from, you know, fairly decent homes. Um, but it, it just seemed to be the, um, you know, sort of the standard in my high school and, you know, even, even late middle school where, you know, lots of kids were, were drinking and stealing liquor from their parents or, or starting to smoke pot. Um, you know, and so it became a fairly regular part of my life at, at a young age, unfortunately. And you, you, you managed to still be functioning. I mean, you obviously got through high school, you went to Wheaton College, you, you swam all four years there, but, but would you parallel at the same time? You probably didn't maximize your swimming performance globally, no? T- t- tell me about that, that yeah. just that bridge of the time, because you were basically almost, to use your phrase, a sort of functioning addict for lack of a better phrase while while being a collegiate athlete yeah yeah i mean i i read somewhere that um potential is a, a dark gift and um from an early age i think i think athletics in school uh, a lot of those things you know social situations um a lot of that stuff came really easy to me and um i didn't have to try very hard to you know and obviously i was a dedicated swimmer and and, and a good student but it was you know it was something that you know, I understood and, and it was sort of my language, right? I was always able to move and, and, um, and write and, and, and excel at school. Um, as I went through, you know, high school, um, I'd, I'd call it sort of a slow burn, right? Uh, you know, doors that were, were open to me were, were slowly closing, right? I, you know, I mentioned I'd, I'd stopped running, but it was really cause I was, I was more concerned with smoking pot with my friends, right? And it really started to impact my my running performance and it's really hard to be a good miler when you're, you know, smoking pot every day. And, mm-hmm. um, so I was like, well, I'll focus on swimming and, you know, so running kind of went by the wayside. And that was the first, when I look back, sort of the first door that closed where I was like something I loved that I had, I had, I had really sacrificed, um, to, to addiction. Right. And I wouldn't have called it that at the time. I would, you know, even though I, there was always this awareness of, uh, I'm doing something, um, whether it's drinking and smoking, you know, pot and later other substances that, um, were really compromising, you know, who I thought I was at the, at the, you know, core of my being or whatever you want to call it. Um, that I really was sacrificing things that were really important to me and were gifts and, and, and I had started to squander them. And, you know, as I went through high school, um, you know, that built more and more, I would say. And, and you couldn't, uh, it's not that awareness at that age, is it? Because they're very small incremental things. Like I'm quitting running. Okay, put it behind you. And uh, 
but then slowly they accumulate. Now you're transitioning to, to college and I think that's where, if I'm right, you're, the situation started to change a little bit, yeah, both in terms of peers and who you're surrounded with, uh, roommates and things like that, as well as substances. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I had gotten into, um, you know, harder substances while I was in high school, you know, prescription pills, Maine was, was ahead of the curve, I would say, you know, and it's been you know, obviously really tragic for the last 10 years to see what, you know, the opiate epidemic has done to the country. But I mean, I saw it you know, sort of full force about 10 years earlier, mm-hmm. um, you know, with rampant, you know, Oxycontin use and, you know, Maine's, Maine's very rural and there's, um, you know, I won't say there's, there's nothing to do there, but there certainly seemed to be, um, you know, the trend, whatever you want to call it nationally was certainly, you know, front and center in Maine before it was on the national stage. And, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was heavily using those substances in high school, but I was certainly introduced to them. Right. And you, you kind of talked about friends and it's like, uh, another good quote, it's, you know, you know, show me who your friends are. And, you know, that, that kind of, it's like, it's kind of who you are, you know, who you spend mm-hmm. your time with. And then, and, and ultimately that's who I, um, you know, I started to surround myself more and more with, you know, not, um, you know, great runners and great swimmers, but, um, people that love to party. Great partiers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you, um, I, I asked you a question. You might not, uh, want to answer this, but you, w- were you dealing or were I was. So even, you know, even in high school, I had, you know, um, you know, I, I, I sold a lot of pot in high school, you know, pot brownies and things like that. And, um, it was sort of how I, you know, I had this, I had this incredible sense of entitlement, I call it right. I came from this, you know, both my parents worked extremely hard and, um, I just, you know, I didn't want to go get a normal job. Right. I, I thought for some reason I was, um, I was above working for, you know, not to say I denied landscaping jobs and painting jobs, but, you know, it was, it was just, um, I, I think it was just this sense of entitlement that, you know, I was, I was owed something and, you know, I didn't, you know, I should, shouldn't have to work, you know, for, mm-hmm. for an hourly rate or whatever that might've been. I think some of that's just being young and, um, you know, but I think some of it was sort of unique to me and that I thought I was, you know, different or, or, or special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, so, so you managed to graduate. I did, yeah. And uh, and then that was the end of the swimming career because that's what happens, yeah. Yeah. Well, I um, in college, I had, you know, this is sort of where you know it 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 really sort of took a dark turn for me. You know, I had, um, you know, I'd always been able to balance sports, school, um, you know, and my addiction, and you know, I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but partying, right? And, and to me, yeah. it was always partying, and you, even though I'd always. Um, probably from 15 on, like I, I knew I was, you know, I was taking, I was, I was making decisions that I, I no longer really wanted to, to make. And like, now that I look back on it, understand addiction a little bit more, I, I would say I didn't have a ton of agency around those choices. Um, you know, it was, um, but then when I, when I went to college and, and, and sort of made new friends, um, you know, some of them were, you know, drug dealers and from, from New York and the Bronx. And so obviously there was, you know, harder drugs came in and that was sort of the story of, uh, you know, the progressive addiction, right. It's, it's progressive disease. And I, you know, I went on to start using a lot of cocaine and, you know, selling that and just being, 
you know, involved in, in, in things, um, you know, of that nature more and more. And my junior year actually at Wheaton, I, I, I failed out of college. Um, and so that was sort of the first awakening and, um, of the real consequences of like me not being able to manage my life, um, and, and, and this disease, um, or this addiction, um, really, uh, you know, having, you know, not only consequences for my personal life, but for my family. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I came back to Maine and I, and, and I just wasn't able to make the, um, I wasn't able to stop. Right. And, and, and that's when I really started to, you know, use, you know, Oxycontin heavily. And, and that's where I would say my addiction really took, you know, took off from, you know, recreational drug use, even though it was, you know, recreational every day, but to something where I was, you know, uh, completely powerless over sort of the decisions I was making, you know, around my, um, my use and, and, and the people I was, you know, surrounding myself with, I was selling drugs. And I remember this moment of, um, I was no longer partying with frat kids. You know, I was, Mm -hmm. I was in someone's basement in Maine or in a trailer in Maine and, you know, they're, you know, using crack cocaine. Um, and it was this pivotal shift for me of, of this awareness that, it was no longer fun and games that, and uh, you know, who, and I remember I had this, you know, I don't know if you want to call it an identity crisis, but this real reckoning of who I always thought I was and who I was raised to be. And, 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 and the sort of things that I really thought were the core of who I was were, were in no way aligned with the actions I was making on a daily basis anymore. Right. And, and not only was I, you know, destroying my own life, I was, I was destroying other people's lives too. And so you, um, you, I mean, you, t- you took action, so you, you got out of Maine, yeah? So, so what happened next? Wait, let's, let's get to the, the, the next stage of the story. Yeah, well, I, when I left Maine, I ultimately I ended up getting back into school, and it, it was at, at this time when I had my first sort of um, attempt at sobriety, right? And, and, and multiple failures at sobriety, but my, my first one was I really was able to um, you know, at this time I stopped selling drugs and, and, and was able to, you know, get a normal job. And I would say like, a lot of the delusional thinking around, you know, this you know, sense of entitlement and things sort of left. And I was like, okay, um, you know, the doors are no longer going to open for you. You have to, you know, make some major changes in your life. And so I was able to get back into school and, um, you know, at, at least stop, um, selling drugs, even though I, I, I would, I would continue to struggle for a number of years after that. But I, I ultimately moved to, um, you know, California after college because of, you know, the old, we call them in the program, you know, the geographical cure, you know, where I was like, I just need to you get know, out remove myself. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, so I went out to California and just another saying, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very old saying I've said many times. And, uh, you know, this was just sort of my process of a number of cycles of in and out of addiction. Right. And I had, I had some good times out in California where I was, um, I was able to get sober and, 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 and for me, it was always, um, you know, I would, I was able to get clean, but I would, you know, I, I didn't identify as an alcoholic, right? Oh, you know, marijuana is okay. You know, and ultimately, um, I would just, you know, sort of go back in the slow descent and, and then cycle back to addiction. And so when I was in, in California, um, ultimately I, you know, after a number of times getting sober, I, you know, I got into heroin out there and, um, I was, you know, sort of at my lowest point for sure. Um, and this was, I think, four four years removed from school. So, so when you're in California, you're uh, 
and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you, you not only were a, uh, a sort of an addict in Maine, you're also dealing, when you went to California, your addiction carried with you, but, but you stopped doing the, the dealing side of stuff, yeah? For, for several years, yeah, four years or so. Yeah, that I you're think I, I stopped selling drugs when I was, you know, 21 years old. And so, you know, while I was still in college, I made that choice, um, which was an important, you know, choice for me to make and an important first step to, you know, really ultimately getting sober. Um, but ultimately when I went back, you know, to California, um, I, I still struggled with, with addiction. Mm -hmm. And, uh, now we're on a podcast about performance. We're going to come to the performance, but we have to get to towards the end of the road mm -hmm. of this. And, uh, in California, you had for, I think three or four years, you left many of those actions back in Maine, but Maine came back to bite you. T tell us about the beginning of the end of this road. Yeah, it's, um, I was living in an apartment in Hollywood and I'd been sober for, I think a year prior to this and I didn't, I just relapsed. And so I was, I was, uh, I was using heroin at the time and, um, at my real darkest place, I'd arrived at a place in my addiction where I, I no longer, f I always thought I could kick it right. I remember looking at old journals and, and like today is the last day and, and making these promises and just always breaking them to myself. And I, I was just powerless to really, um, you know, make any changes in my life that, that were effective. I, I kept on having, you know, three months here, four months there, but ultimately, you know, and, and this sort of last go around was, was really the darkest. And I remember I was, you know, I was detoxing and, um, and I remember praying and, you know, I'm, I'm not, I certainly consider myself spiritual, but I, I wasn't a, you know, <laughs> you know, devout Catholic or anything like that. But I remember praying to God for, you know, or, or something for some form of help. And, and, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, that, that prayer was answered. It just wasn't in the, it wasn't G O D it was D E A. And so I was living, uh, like I said, in Hollywood and it was 7am and there was a knock at the door and I, you know, I went to the door and there was, um, you know, four federal marshals there with, you know, automatic weapons. And, um, it was very, uh, surreal and movie like, and, uh, you know, they arrested me and, and, and told me I was, you know, under arrest for, um, conspiracy to distribute cocaine. And yeah, I was, it was really dumbfounded, um, because I, you know, I wasn't selling drugs at the time. I just couldn't wrap my mind around, um, you know, what was going on. I remember we were driving down sunset Boulevard and I was, it was, you know, bright morning. The sun was just like beating into this cop car and I'm, and I'm detoxing and, um, you know, it was just like, uh, this, um, this incredible moment of like all the consequences of my past and all the decisions I'd made just, um, right. There you know, right. Or, you know, hit me right in the face. It was, you know, something that'll stick with me for forever. And so you were transferred back. And when, when did you, I guess what, what happened next briefly, but, but also when did you hit rock bottom? Was that, when was the catalyst for change that, that really occurred? Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, the last time I, I used drugs was, um, you know, Christmas Eve of, um, 2010 and, and my, and, and the real, 
And I, I just remember it really vividly because I'd, I'd been flown back to Maine on Con Air and I'd spent about a month in, in transit um, to different federal holding facilities. And when I finally arrived back in Maine. I was, I was bailed out. And so my parents had put up their house to, to, to get me out of prison um, while I awaited trial. And um, uh, I went out and used with my friend on, you know, and I, and I remember it after I, I was just sitting there and I was like, if this isn't enough, you know, if your parents' house isn't enough, if this federal indictment isn't enough, like nothing is ever going to be enough. Like, you know, and it wasn't, you know, and, and, and I'd made those sort of declarations before, but I just remember that as this pivotal shift for me of, um, I'm going to die, you know, or, or spend the rest of my life in prison unless I, um, do something about this, you know, drastically. And, and so the the catalyst for change, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second, uh, was that moment you you then went to trial and uh, you were found guilty. What, what, what were you sentenced to? I was sentenced to fifty six months. Fifty six months. Yep. And uh, navigating, we won't spend long on prison. I don't think it's the most interesting part of the story. I think the evolution out of addiction is vastly more interesting. But how did you navigate prison? What did you draw on? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I went to prison feeling like I was a victim, um, you know, that I had been, um, you know, not, not wrongly accused because I certainly partook in some of these, you know, behaviors, but my case was, you know, not unique to, I think a lot of federal cases out there, um, where, you know, I had done something in the past and, and, and never been caught with any drugs or anything, but then ultimately the people that I was involved with, you know, ended up getting busted and, and, and through those, you know, sort of grand jury indictments, they were able to indict me for, for things I'd done in the past. Um, so I went in with this mindset of, um, you know, I was this victim of, um, you know, this, this larger system and you ultimately go in there and you see people that are, you know, my age or less with, you know, 30 year prison sentences. Um, and, you know, I had, a, you know, my family was just incredible. Um, you know, my, my, my friends, um, you know, the support I had, the education, you know, the, the things that a lot of people in prison that most people in prison don't have, you know, don't have that support network, um, you know, and so that was apparent to me when I was in there, you know, just, you know, the, the level of support and, you know, not only for my family, but just that, you know, swimming and, and, and college and, and, and sort of the skills that, you know, I wouldn't have called them skills at the time. It wasn't until later in life that I really... Um, have identified them as, you know, actual skills where you go, oh, God, you know, swimming, you know, multiple laps in a pool that actually does prepare you for boredom and tedium. Right. And, um, and, you know, so I, I, I just always knew that, you know, ever since I was a young kid, like I, I just love movement, right. It's, it's the one place I think a lot of athletes identify it and they say, you know, I'm just happiest when I'm, you know, moving or I'm in flow or whatever it is. And, 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 and there's certainly a lot of parallels to, you know, how you feel when you're stoned or, you know, high or drunk. It's, you know, you're, you're able to tap into some sort of energy that, um, you know, feels good. And, um, so when I went to prison, you know, I was just very, I was very regimented, you know, I wrote every day. Um, I did the things that I think made me a good athlete. Like I was, you know, I would get up and I would write for, you know, 90 minutes every morning and, you know, and I would journal and I would, you know, write short stories and then I would work out and I would run. And, and, and that was pretty much my routine. I made, um, <laughs> interestingly enough, you know, it's kind of how my life is today. It's very 
very ritualistic purple patch, but <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I thrive in, a, in an environment of stability and mm-hmm. habit and consistency. And, and that is, you know, that is how I, um, you know, even though every morning I get up to go swim at, you know, five thirty or whatever it is, um, you know, I always say, I don't really want to swim today or whatever it is. Um, but that sort of consistency really allows me to, um, excel through the rest of the day and, and, and not spend, you know, too much time, you know, thinking about, um, you know, why I'm doing certain things or, you know, that, that sort of intellectual curiosity or whatever is, is a skill. But for me, I think in addiction, it was, it was paralyzing. Like I always thought I could think my way out of addiction or I would think, you know, and, and now I just, I'm like, well, I'm feeling this way. And I sort of just take action on it. I'm like, well, it's okay. You're having a bad day today. I'm, I'm just going to go do this run and or I'm going to, you know, ultimately I just sort of take those, those actions and instead of being um, sort of prisoner to my emotions. Let, let, let's come into sport as you, you came out of, uh, of prison. Did, did, did you serve 50, 60 I ended up or? serving 34 months. Th- through, 34 yeah. months. And uh, you, you came out, you're starting from effectively nothing. Let's talk about the role of sport. And, uh, and, and let me preface this when I, when I talk about this, one thing I'm interested in is, I, I've talked to several people that have transferred from addiction of one kind or another and replaced it with another addiction. One of the things that, cutting to the end for, for me, one of the things that is startling, nothing nothing short of startling for me, is that sport is not an addiction for you. In, in fact, I know many triathletes that are vastly more obsessed. And, and the interesting part of this story as I listen to it is that uh, it, it is not the Matt Hurley I know. At the same time, it's the Matt Hurley I know. And uh, you, sport is pivotal, pivotal in your life now, but it hasn't just been, I think this is a key part of your success, it hasn't just been a replacement of addiction. So I'd love you to dive into the role of sport as you came out and, and as it sits now for you. Yeah, and I think that's that's sort of been an interesting part of my recovery too, is finding that balance in those areas. Because when I came out, I I, I certainly, um, you know, I just ran, I biked, I swam, and ultimately I just wasn't very happy. And I found myself, um, you know, just sort of closer to the edge of of you know using again. And I ultimately knew if I continued to only use triathlon as an outlet, that I would you know that I would relapse. Um, you know, so. You know, I, I, you know, I'm in, in the program of recovery. You know, that's a big part of my life. Um, you know, I go to meetings, um, but I really try and, you know, I, I try and stay in the middle of stuff. And, you know, prison taught me, you know, <laughs> you know, one, how to deal with boredom and, and sort of tedium, which I alluded to. But it's, you know, when I was in there, it was, you're really just managing, you know, the highs and lows. You never want to be too low. Um, you want to be in your routine, you know, and, you never, you know, you, not that you ever get too many emotional highs in prison, but, um, that's sort of how I think of my training. Um, you know, I, I don't go out and, um, try and hammer, you know, I know if I give 110%, you know, on, on a bike session that ultimately, you know, I feel like crap the rest of the day, you know, if I run too hard at the track, you know, it might feel great in that moment, but ultimately there's a price to pay. And, and I think just the, you know, I, I try and, you know, and you talked about it a lot, but the process is what I really enjoy. It's, it's, it's the routine. It's, it's the consistency. And, and I think once I wrap my mind around, you know, that it wasn't, you know, 
that the sessions ultimately or the workouts weren't the, the, the secret, you know, prescription, right. That it was just showing up and sort of giving, you know, the best you have on that day. Um, which sometimes for me is, you know, showing up, you know, sometimes it's yeah. just like getting the pool and floating around and that's a good workout. And, and, and I'm pretty good at making those adjustments of, you know, and I talk about this with, with some of the people I coach is I'm just really good at, you know, giving 80% all the time. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm not the person that's doing the extra interval. I'm not the person that's, you know, getting to the pool 10 minutes early, but I also don't miss two weeks of training. You know, I don't miss, you know, I don't get injured because I'm really careful around, um, you know, and certainly I get niggles, but I, you know, I know how important, you know, movement and fitness is to my life. So I, I, you know, I'm not chasing, you know, these external things that, you know, do, do, do you think because of your experiences, you've ironically become a better athlete for it? Do you think you could be, cause you're obviously a, a high performing athlete. You might, you must sneak in your performances. I, I, as your boss, <laughs> I guess, uh, never really notice your training. Do you know what I mean? It's just integrated into your life and it and it's great, but then you go and pop off, oh, I'm overall champion here. Do you think that your experiences of, from a mindset standpoint have helped you become a better athlete? Yeah, I, I certainly think so. And, and I really, I think it's a testament to, you know, joining Purple Patch too. I mean, there was, I mean, obviously joined you guys because I was, you know, aligned with, with a lot of things you were doing from a coaching standpoint. And, and when I, when I really came here and, you know, moved to San Francisco, um, you know, I would say I, I had, I had these ambitions of, you know, being a really great, like I had, I had the ambitions of, of some of the things I've achieved, right? Like, you know, okay, I think I could, I think I could go around four hours in a 70.3. And I, you know, I, I certainly had those goals, but I never, I never put that above, you know, showing up or, or other things in my life. I, I never sacrificed massive amounts of, um, you know, I don't know how to put it, but it, it's the same reason I'm wary of, you know, um, ultimately I know winning 70, you know, it feels good for about 10 minutes, you know, maybe yeah. the day after, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and granted my athletic career and, you know, in high school and college, I, I've won enough races to know that it's a pretty, you know, um, and you just look at any of those world champions out there that are, you know, very lonely and, 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 yeah. and selfish people. And, and it sort of is a selfish pursuit of, of excellence. And, um, you know, I'm certainly not on that stage, but I, but I also know there's not a ton of real internal joy in actually winning a race, right? It's, it's, it's all external and it feels good to be recognized and everyone wants to win, of course. Um, I think, but, I, th yeah. I think in my, my impression of you is that even when you, you won that race or you, you, you won the races that you have won, it hasn't gone any way to define you as a person now. And yeah. uh, that's what I see. Um, it's great. You enjoyed it. Then it was back to work and, uh, and not to make it sterile because I don't think it was. I think we, we all collectively celebrated when you have done well, but it certainly doesn't define you, uh, anymore. Let, let's talk about purple patch because I think the story is worth reaching out. I have, I have as one side of the lens. I, I received your application, but you actually reached out to us for an internship. Mm -hmm. Uh, so tell us the story there. What, what were your emotions? Uh, it must be a strange feeling of, of applying 
And mm-hmm. uh, so tell us, your, I'd love to hear your side of it. I never have heard your side of it. Well, it's actually, I'd come out here, I'd, I'd met Sarah Pampiano at a, um, she's, she's also a fellow Mainer, and I'd met her at a local triathlon club run by um, Todd Larley, who's um, you know, oh, yeah. a disciple of him. He used to coach for Tower 26. Exactly. Now uh, coaches his, I can't remember his... Uh, he coaches yeah. at, um, Coast Coast Endurance. Is Coast local. Endurance, yeah, he's a great guy, yeah, a very also, good coach as well. Yeah. yeah, and so I'd went actually with John Stevens and I had went and met Sarah Pampiano and and you know we were just chatting and she you know casually said, "Hey, if you ever come out to San Francisco, come train with me." And <laughs> I said, "Okay." And uh, you know, I think a month later, my brother was coming out for a work trip, so I came out with him and um, you know Sarah basically you know, as she does, just rolled out the, you know, the red carpet for me and said, Hey, here's my training plan. Join me for, uh, you know, whatever you want. And, and I think Melindy Elmore and her husband were actually out here training on this trip as well. Oh, yeah. and, and we were on a ride and he was like, Oh, Matt's looking for interns. And, and, and I didn't think much more of it. And I went back to Maine and I, and I just started thinking, well, I said, maybe I'll, maybe I'll email him. And, and so I, sh- I, you know, I sent over the email and I said, Hey, you know, if you guys are looking for interns, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd love to apply. And, and, you know, that's sort of... And at this stage, I didn't know anything in history. I just knew this talented, nice guy from Maine, basically, that Sarah yeah. had, had touted for. Uh, what do you remember about the interview? You know, I, I remember I was sitting in my car outside my other job at, you know, Aurora Provisions at the time, and I was talking to you, and um, and we had a, you know, I'd sent over my application, and, and I think we, you know, I didn't feel like I, I, you know, I blew the interview out of the water or anything, but I, I think ultimately you would, you know, I, we'd either decided we were going to move forward, um, which is when, you know, I said, you know, or, or, you know, we hadn't decided we were going to move forward, but I sort of said, you know, we had the chat and then I said, you know, and then I said, well, uh, something you should know. You yes. know and so I remember the words, the words are actually... There's one more thing just before you go. <laughs> and, uh, and you gave me the very condensed uh, story of that. Um, I, I, I want to tell my side of it because uh, the, when you reached out, and we, I remember we had several very interesting candidates, really varied candidates of, of people that were very interested in getting involved. And, um, and as soon as I spoke to you, I, I felt like, here is someone that gets it, uh, that's relatively green at the stage, but but gets it and uh, and feels a great affinity with Purple Patch, and then you drop the bombshell on me. And uh, so I quickly got off the phone and said, let me talk about it. And, and it was something actually that myself and Kelly, who uh, obviously my wife and Kelly and I run Purple Patch together, it was really something that I'd never faced before as a small business owner and something that we really had to consider and uh, and so i i did the best thing i could do which i reached out to friends and and uh, and advisors for advice and and the the feedback was really polarized uh, i don't know if you know that but some people were you know people people deserve a second chance some people said why would you take on that burden like go and find someone else you don't have to take on that burden and um and it came back to kelly and i it really came back to a saying that uh, that we live by at Purple Patch that you know because you say it a lot now, which is evolve or die. And, um, and my feeling was, you know, if we if we live by this saying as an organisation, 
we've got to believe it. And if we believe that people can grow, people can evolve, and we demand it within Purple Patch with our team and our coaching team, then how can we not see what happens? And, uh, and so we decided to take a risk and, and give it a chance. And, and I'll say that, um, you know, the outcome of it, Matt, is that, that you've become absolutely unequivocally, unequivocally the, one of the most valuable members of the team. And, and ultimately what's born out of it is, you know, really you've become my right-hand man, a highly respected coach by all of your athletes. And, and your world is, is different now. Um, so as you look back on, you know, you've been at Purple Patch for, for a few years now, as, as you stand here and look back, uh, less about Purple Patch, more about you as a person, where do you stand right now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I've had a lot of milestones over the last, you know, I, just, you know, I think last December was, you know, nine years of sobriety for me. Um, and, you know, I think a week ago was, uh, you know, my five year anniversary of, of, of getting out of prison. And, you know, it's, you definitely, uh, you know, I, I certainly have, you know, some deep moments of reflection of, oh, geez, like that was my life, you know, and, 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 you know, people ask me, you know, about prison or whatever it was. And it's certainly, you know, I was in a worse um, place in a worse hell when I was using drugs, right? I didn't have any way out. I didn't have, you know, I, you know, I didn't think I would ever be able to, to live a normal life um, and, and, and recover um, for, back, for lack of a better um, phrase. Um, so, you know, to not only be able to, you know, for myself... Um, for my family, you know, my mom and dad and, and all the people that supported me to be able to, you know, just be, just be sober today um, and, and live, you know, a somewhat, you know, stable and normal life, whatever, whatever that means. Right. But I'm, I'm certainly, you know, I'm not living in chaos and, 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 and sort of ruin that, you know, sort of define my life for about 10 years. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of the, always the thing I lead with when I think about, you know, uh, you know, cause even with purple patch, like, you know, I have this great job now. I mean, it's, you know, and, and, and not to say there's not stress cause I, I think it's any place you work, but it's, you know, the same thing I talked about athletics. It's ultimately having a great job is not, that's an external thing, right? And it's, it's all about, um, you know, I call it emotional sobriety and, and it's sort of something I'm really careful about is where, you know, where do I stand day to day? Right. And how am I, you know, how am I feeling? And not that I, not that I, like I said, read much, too much into that, but I'm, you know, I really do invest a lot in, 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 in where I'm, you know, where do I stand personally, you know, mm -hmm. and spiritually and, and, and sort of, and sort of that lens. And that, that allows me to, you know, it's just like process with athletics. Like if I do that, then, then good things come out of that. And, and, you know, that's sort of just been the, the case for me. And, you know, it was all this small, consistent things done well over a long period of time, you know, not great, you know, never excellent, just like making right choices, um, you know, investing in my recovery and, and, you know, surrounding myself with people that, you know, cared about me and supported me, um, has just given me a life that, you know, I obviously never could have imagined, you know, two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm certainly obviously, you know, when I think about it and, and reflect on it and, you know, we've talked about it before, but just how, just how grateful I am to, you know, all the people that, you know, you know, you and Kelly and, and obviously you know, everyone, you know, even the small things like, you know, Sarah Pampiano, just extending that courtesy, right. And how you mm-hmm. can, how you can change someone's life just by extending some sort of kindness like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and how those little things in, in, in life, you know, are ultimately the really big things. Um, and that when you get opportunities, you have to jump. When you, when you have, when you get opportunities, you have to jump and, uh, but you sure as heck had to jump, you know? Yeah. And, uh, in fact, we talked to the team today about, uh, uh, what it is to be that the characteristics of being a great coached athlete and the best coached athletes are the ones that are empowered and are engaged and really take ownership and the best coaches in our case for purple patch will be the people that that jump that that are not just waiting to be guided and coached and mentored by the other coaches but really go forth and reach for something and and i think it extends into really anything in life uh, do, do you have any do you have any lessons or or thoughts for either young coaches or um or athletes globally it's your time you got the you got the pedal <laughs> store what are, what are your takeaway the last question what are your takeaway lessons or uh, or guidance for coaches or athletes You know, I think if you're a coach, <laughs> forget about the sessions, you know, you, you know, and you talk about this a lot, but it really is. If you think of yourself as a teacher first, um, and you know, I think it's listening is a skill we, you know, I certainly could develop, but I think, you know, that's a tough one for me as a coach, right? It's, it's easy to get caught up in, in the newest, you know, whatever the training methodology is. And but ultimately, you know, we talk about it, the sessions, are, you know, the sessions are important, but it's just one piece of the, it's one piece of the puzzle. And it's the thing that everyone focuses on. Right. Um, you know, for young athletes, um, I, you know, for me, it comes down to, you know, it, it sounds corny, but it, you know, do what you love to do. Right. And, 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 and I always loved, um, you know, swimming and, 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 and cycling and move, you know, and movement. And that was what saved me from addiction, right? It was what bridged that gap for me to, you know, be able to, you know, get into recovery and, 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 you know, thank God for that. You know, I, I think without swimming and, and, and my running background, I never would have been able to make the jump to, oh, this extends further than, you know, just running and swimming. I really have to address some things here. Um, but, you know, and then it's just, it, it's, it's more about process than anything. It's not, it, it, you know, there's no, there's no hero sessions. There's no, there's no magic bullets. It's, you know, consistent work done well over a long period of time. And if you're young and you have a long period of time, you can get really, really good. You can you know? get really and, good. And that's this key. And I think you see that with a lot of our athletes, whether it's therapy or, you know, um, you know, intentional focus and, and discipline and in, in, in the small areas um, is I think really what, elevates people from being good to to really great great. athletes we're going to get backdoor to finish matt uh 
Thank you very much. I've got four more questions, but luckily they should take under a minute. Uh, I know that you've listened to other podcasts and so you know how we finish, but you're probably not that prepared for these desert island. You're going to have to shoot a think off the cuff here, my friend. So every discussion that we have, we finish with quick questions called Desert Island. Desert and, Island. Uh, Desert Island, our, um, it's a great BBC radio show where people were asked to bring their top five pieces of music. Well, we've got four questions. This is purple patch style on this. And you're getting exiled, uh, or in your case, you're just getting sent away to the slammer. <laughs> and uh, you can bring just a few things with you. So the first, if you had to bring one piece of music, what would it be? And most importantly, why? You know, some sort of box symphony that was like you know, 90 minutes long or, you know, not that it would be my ideal listening, but I think you have to look at the long haul of, you know, what am I going to be least tired of in 10 years? You know? so. <laughs> there's, there's a man with experience. <laughs> All right. So uh, are you, you going to say Ulysses on this one? If you had one book to bring, what would it be and why? By the way, I've banned the Bible from it because yeah. the Bible and the Quran and, and all of this, that's all gone. You can't bring any of that. One book. Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, I'll say, yeah, I don't know if it'd be the one book I'll bring, but it's one of my, you know, River Runs Through It is probably one of my favorite books. And I've read it a number of times. It's by... Um, this author, Norman McLean, it's about two brothers that you know, grow up in Montana, and it's this... Uh, Montana, indeed. It's um, just a great short story. I highly recommend it. I can see you as a Montana boy one, one of these <laughs> days, I tell you. So now you can bring one other thing. What would it be? And you can't go survivalist on me. And I, I mean outside in the woods or in the slammer, you can't go survivalist. What else would you bring with you? Well, I wouldn't bring the four percent because you're only getting two hundred miles out of them. I'd bring it, you know. Are they endless, endless shoes? Do they do they have a lifespan? And endless shoes. You know, some sort of. You know, I think if you had running, you know, um, if I had a pair of running shoes, I'd be happy enough. Happy enough. You're leaving. You're heading to exile. What's the one piece of advice that you would offer the world before you head off? I think if I'm talking to a future generation, you know, with, with my generation and everything that's going on in the world right now, I'd say don't fuck it up. That is a Dixonism right there, if there yeah. is one. That is, by the way, that is the last word, guys. That is our special, special Best of luck, last words that I often say to the pros right before the start line. Good luck. <clears throat> Don't fuck it up. <laughs> Maddie, you're, um, thank you. Thank you for being brutally honest and, uh, and, and vulnerable, which is a vulnerability in my mind is a, is a great strength and a, and a, great, a great example of, uh, of leadership. And you have developed to be a leader. Uh, there's no doubting your coaching ability. And, uh, and how important you are to Purple Patch. So thank you for, for sharing your advice. I know there are many people out there that are either navigating or have navigated very similar situations. And, uh, and so I hope that 
your story and your mindset can maybe help provide some perspective, but also some inspiration. And, uh, and that's why within the realm of performance, that's why I asked you to come on and I really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, guys, what a story. I got to say that one left me a little bit raw. You see, I actually didn't know a lot of the inner depths of that story. And to be honest, I've never really heard Matt speak quite like that. So openly, so thoughtfully. And it meant a lot to me that he was willing to come on and share his story. You see, for me as the head coach of Purple Patch, I actually realized it made me feel really proud. Yet a little bit proud that Kelly and I had enough belief in Matt and were willing to take a little bit of a risk. But much more importantly, I was proud of Matt for stepping up, navigating through his addiction and ultimately coming out the other side to become now what is undoubtedly a key member of our team. I'm incredibly proud of our coaching team at Purple Patch and the way that we approach it with a collaborative, supportive lens. I believe that ultimately any individual thrives when they have mentorship, when they have a team of peers to support and get feedback from, and are also someone to guide and teach. Well, that's the lens that we take when we think about the coaching team. We don't like to just take our logos, slap them on a coach and send them out to the wild. Instead, myself, Matt Hurley, and the whole coaching team are actively engaged on ongoing support with each other. With an evolve or die mindset, we always want to have one simple mission. How do we help our athletes thrive? And that becomes a really key component. And by operating as a team, we have to be empathetic to any individual and their own challenges in life. And so, like Matt Hurley's story, our mission is ultimately to help people find their athletic potential. But it's through the lens that via athletic potential, you ultimately reach human potential. So I'm proud to see that Matt and all of our coaches are actively engaged in helping so many people reach their potential. Now, this strikes, ding, a little opportunity for me let's plug in a shameless purple patch plug if you're interested we're happy to have a chat with you about purple patch and see whether well maybe we're the right fit for you and your coaching needs simply email info at purplepatchfitness.com and i would even reference in your email this episode that you heard and nate will set up a free consultation maybe just maybe we're the right fit for you on a more somber or real note I hope that if you're struggling with addiction or if you have struggled with addiction, maybe, maybe this episode was helpful and I hope that it can help you navigate a little bit. It's been a heck of a show. I really appreciate you joining us. Next week, we're back to the straight and narrow, right on to performance. Until then, take care.